I am Neil Edwards, and this is The Leadership Range, where we elevate the voices of black and brown coaches, leaders, and allies, and have soulful conversations about all things at the intersections of leadership, relationships and teams, well-being, and inclusion. Here I offer deep insights and practical tips for work and life. Today is the final of four conversations I had with people after the insurrection in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. I had a conversation with Steve Tulowitzki. Steve is a professional certified coach and elected official in his hometown. You can see how to connect with Steve in the mini bio in the show notes. The conversation is actually the second conversation I had with Steve because there was a technical issue with the original recording. So today is a bit of a gift. We spoke the morning of February 13th as the U.S. Senate was choosing whether or not to convict the former president of the United States of inciting the insurrection. It gave me an opportunity to contrast between January 6th and February 13th with Steve in our conversations. Each of these post 1-6 conversations were remarkable. You'll hear Steve talk about the real world compared to the one he was raised in as a white man and how it framed his initial reaction to the insurrection. His life journey had him veer away from the world that was meant for him and gave him eyes to see what he could not previously see. Steve touches on spiritual energy, blood money, tertullias, trading in relationships as an ally, choice, and much, much more. I'll be back at the end of the conversation with some of my own reflections, including something important I did not hear from Steve. For now, welcome to The Leadership Range. Welcome, Steve. How are you today? I'm doing well. You know, it's funny that's the coaching question is, is how are you feeling right now? So maybe I can answer that. I'm feeling intrigued. I'm feeling intrigued, slightly broken and slightly impish um, and honored to be with you. How are you feeling right now, Neil? How am I feeling? Now I'm curious you know, in the moment as you, as you give me that response. I'm happy to have you here on the Leadership Range. We are recording this on February 13th. And uh, you and I had a conversation some weeks ago and uh, had, a, had a glitch with our recording. So here we are again to re-record and have a new conversation. And I'm actually delighted about it because we can we can explore uh, more range in this conversation than, than we were able to the first time we spoke. So Steve Tulowitzki is, is a coach and a leader and a, and a man and an aspiring ally and uh, a, a friend to me over the last several years. And I invited Steve to the leadership range to have him share his his experience of the insurrection on the United States from January 6th. And we're going to talk about that today. And we're also going to talk a bit about what his experience is like now, given that it is now uh, February 13th, and, and how it informs and shapes what allyship means to him, uh, you know, as a result of these events. So Steve, I you know, I just gave a, you know, that's just a little bit about you. I, I shared with listeners, but what I'd like you to do is sort of take 
take folks on a little bit of a journey of who you are, you, how your leadership has formed over your life, and and you know just speak to a few inflection points that have informed you and shaped you and 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 given the world world the the man that you are today. Thank you for that invitation. How we've given the world the man that I am today, you know, makes me think of where it all starts. You know, you come from a union of your parents. And I think in the United States, at least where I grew up as a white kid in the Midwest, Northwest Indiana, kind of raised to become your father. And so that's where my head goes when you ask that question. A pivotal moment was, you know, that my dad told me in about seventh grade, if I make the honor roll, I'm going to get a raise in my allowance. So I made the honor roll from that point forward. Uh, and that was a beginning of a process of becoming him. And my dad had studied engineering, had a master's in metallurgical engineering. And so when it came time to go through high school and college, I found out I had a talent for math and science. And so I went, I decided to sign up for mechanical engineering myself. But that was a little bit of a betrayal, it turns out, because it wasn't metallurgical engineering. It wasn't the school that he went to. And when you talk about a few um, turning points, the first one that came to mind was actually when a few of my friends from high school invited me to go to South Bend, Indiana to a Notre Dame football game. And, and I must have been in high school myself. So I asked for permission and my dad said, well, I wouldn't do it if I were you, but I'm not going to stop you. And we went to the game and good, clean fun. We had a great time. And I thought that was great. I did something on my own, even though it's not what my dad would do. And I, I, I trusted myself. He trusted me. And uh, so that was like a little bit of a break, a little opening. And I said, I went to Purdue, as I said, to study engineering. And at some point, I found out that I loved speaking Spanish, but I couldn't actually do it. So a friend of mine told me that he knew another white guy who went to Sevilla, Spain, and came back speaking fluent Spanish. And I decided, I want to do that. Mention it to my my parents and my dad. And he says, well, I certainly wouldn't do that. So this was the second time, you know, I could really decide, well, last time went pretty well, even though it was just a football game, 60 minutes away. Uh, so I decided to go to study in Madrid in 1998. Uh, and that was the ultimate watershed moment, you know, quantum shift in my life. For the first time, I was reliant on myself and had to figure out who I was in order to make my way through this country and this world and come back safe and spend the limited money that I had and to achieve the goal of learning to speak Spanish. And it forever changed me. That was junior year of college. I really struggled to have the sort of spiritual energy now as a coach, I would call it, to continue to deliver uh, excellent results in my final year of mechanical engineering because my heart wasn't in it. My heart was in Europe because I didn't figure out fully who I was. So I had this idea that's the place where I could do it. And that's what led me to go into consulting because this would be a career where I could 
consult and inform CEOs of what they ought to do at the ripe age of my early 20s and travel all over the world. This was the story that was sold. And to a certain extent, for me anyways, turned out to be true. And I just knew I had to live in Europe before it was done. I had to live and work in Europe. So after seven years of chasing that dream, I managed to get the opportunity to transfer offices from Chicago to Amsterdam after I'd met Celine, my wife, who's a Dutch woman. So I guess that's kind of what brought me uh, here. I was supposed to be raised to become a carbon copy of my father. And a little bit of veering away from that uh, has now ended up with me, you know, looking and laughing a bit like my father, but not in very meaningful and important ways, you know, showing up in the world like like a copy of him. Mm. So I I jotted down some notes as I was listening to that. So th- thank you for sharing that story. And what a journey. Not not many people can experience that type of journey as a young man, as a young person. And you said something towards the end there, Steve, a little bit of veering away from what was supposed to be. What, what has me curious now is, for your own leadership, where do you find yourself veering away from what you're supposed to be as a white man who grew up in Indiana? So I want you to just hold that, you know, jot it down. What has you veering away right now? So we're going to talk about, uh, well, we're going to talk about a few things, but we're going to start with the January 6th insurrection and your experience of it. You know, everybody, I'm going to say everybody, but... I imagine millions of people observed what happened that day, mostly on television, uh, some folks live. And um, I know you observed uh, that day. So tell us what it's had so many impressions on us. But from that day, what was the primary one or two impressions, impacts on you that day, as you recall that experience? You used the word impact, which really struck me and and sticks with me because part of the work I've done as an aspiring ally lately has led me to become very curious about the two worlds, two distinct worlds, intention, the world of intention and the world of impact. So my very first glimpse of seeing what was going on about 1.30 p.m. Central Time, and I know that because I was about 30 minutes late finishing a call for something that is a passion project of mine, the Guaranteed Income Validation Effort for the city of Gary, Indiana. And uh, Celine asked me, like, you got to see what's going on. And the first lens through which I saw what was going on was from the world of intention, which is the one that I was raised in. I was told, you know, keep your head down, do your work, get the right answer, and you'll be fine. So the first thing I noticed was, it looked kind of like a unruly frat party, you know, or a tailgate party. It looked like college with some people had gone out of, out of, out of control, but the intent, what made it look like that to you? You know, the first thing, and this this is very interesting, probably because I've been in groups like that, not incited by the president in an insurrectious coup to overthrow the government, but, 
you know, a bunch of, I don't know how many people were drunk there. Probably. I don't know that I never even thought of that before, but it looked like a group of people who would be drunk out in the cold doing stupid stuff with their face painted with flags that they're just, you know, in from the lens of the world of intention, they're just holding up because they're like cheering for a team. If you purely look at it from lens of intention, someone walking with a Confederate flag, and this is part of how I was raised here, you know, the good old boys, the Dukes of Hazard, their car was called the General Lee, and it had that flag. I had the car, you know, the matchbox car with the Confederate flag on the top. And those are were designed to be my heroes, Bo and Luke Duke. Mm-hmm. So the lens mm-hmm. of just intention is like, well, they're cheering for their team. And mm-hmm. they're at a football game, for example. So this was normal behavior. This looked at first glance and through purely the the lens of the world of intention, which I believe I was raised to live purely from being a white man from the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of looked like normal behavior. Like there had been a football game that didn't go how it was supposed to go and the home team won and they all rushed the field. Like there are police officers and you're not supposed to do it, but it's on TV and they tear down the goalposts, you know, and it's a big celebration. And fortunately, that little veering off that I that happened when I was in high school led me to a very different path, which included meeting you and a number of other things. I've now, and I'm getting chills just thinking about this, not good chills, like chills of evil almost of that there's what i would call the real world and that's the world of impact and so i what was really left the impression was really left with me is the impact of what was going on the people dead yeah yeah i mean that's that's poignant it's you know that veering off and has created this opening and this the space for you to actually see the impact of that behavior where you otherwise might not have been able been able okay yeah yeah look if i didn't go to spain and learn to speak spanish if i didn't move to holland and learn to speak dutch i would not be able to speak dutch and spanish it's a learned skill which gives me hope if i had not met you and Jennifer Williams at Discover after Botham Jean was killed and gone off to Europe to see that not that there aren't black and white racism issues in the same way there as we have here and had all these other experiences, I would not have been able to see, I believe, the world of impact, the real world. Hmm. Mm-hmm. The real world. Um, you know, I'm sitting here. Very honored to be a guest on the leadership range with you in Zachary Nunn's network of living corporate. I'm a guest in this space and I'm laughing because this is fairly personal, but I guess I will share it anyways. When we first moved back to the States from Amsterdam and Lana was just born, it was my birthday and my dad and my parents and everyone had had come over. My sister was in town. And, and Lana is one of your children. Yeah, I have two daughters, Lana and Zoe. They're nine and seven now. So Lana was about six weeks old at this time. 
And it was the first time everyone had come together in our new house and I had high expectations for it. And I didn't want to be distracted by TV or football games or whatever, but my dad wanted to have it on. And he had just come off of, in the past couple of years, having a stroke and he nearly died and he had emergency brain surgery. And it changed his ability to regulate his emotions, which I think is important because I, I know that there are all kinds of things and emotions and nastiness in my head that I'm able to regulate and not have them show up in the world of impact. And I don't think he, he, he since rebuilt a lot of that capability. But there was a tiff that I didn't want to watch the football game. I wanted to enjoy the moment of our families all coming together. And Celine, my wife, knew that it might be contentious. So she was the one to deliver the message like, no, let's just leave the TV off. And I'm in the kitchen and I, I said, I hear some screaming all of a sudden. It's like, well, well, I want it on. And she's like, well, Steve, mm-hmm. you know, we don't want to have the TV on today. And he says, well, I'm a guest here. You know, and I heard, well, you don't have to be, which was the right move. <laughs> and at the moment, I went into this coach mode of observer and I saw what was going on and I stayed calm and tried to get in the middle of it. It turned out not to be uh, a great scene and dad wasn't there for the rest of the day. And we actually didn't talk for a few months. We are talking again now. But that indignation that came out of him at that moment, I'm a guest here. You will do what I want. That's not how I feel on your podcast, The Leadership Range. And in this beautiful place that Zachary has built to help make the, to help navigate the world of impact that those in power who more often, I would say, live in the world of intention have made very treacherous for people of color. And so I'm a guest here and I'm very aware of and trying to pay attention to the impact that I have of bringing a white guy's voice into here to take up some space. And that's different. That's pretty new for me even. I think that's part of the solution of what allies need to do first for ourselves or aspiring allies is look around at the impact that we make when we enter into a space. Yes, you, you're invited here and you're a welcome guest and the stories that you hold or you know the, the beliefs that you hold determine how you show up, determine the impact that you have in this space. Indeed. May, may I say something about that? I, I, sure. I don't know if, I don't believe you've watched just this morning, February 13th, the impeachment trial, when everyone thought it was going to close. I have today. not. You have not. Listeners may have or seen some coverage of it. We thought it was going to close. Mitch McConnell had announced that he was going to acquit. And the impeachment managers from the Democratic side, they decided to call a witness. And if you would like to see what someone who lives in the world of intention and doesn't give a flip, doesn't give a shit about the impact they make, and has no idea what it means to be a guest in the very place where this insurrection and deaths happened and destruction happened. Just watch attorney Van Der Veen or Van Der Veen, as we would say in Dutch. Watch how he screamed at the senators. And he was so ridiculous using his 
his own world, his own lens of being a personal injury attorney to say, if you're going to subpoena someone, she needs to show up at my office in Philadelphia or however he said it, not by Zoom. And the senators, I don't know if it was all 100, but many of them laughed. They couldn't control themselves. And he said, you don't laugh at me. He was treating them like he was the king of the world. That's how I think we were intended to be raised, white men in this country, to be king of the world. You went to law school, you know, you passed the bar and you're accredited in three states. You're king of the world when you're speaking in a legal proceeding, whatever you have done before is exactly the right thing. And if anyone else is wrong, fuck them. <laughs> and that's what showed up there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so January 6th, uh, February 13th, are you seeing the same thing? Was that crowd uh, sort of the monolithic, you know, sort of indignant X? <laughs> and is that the same thing that you saw this morning? No. I mean, I've... No? What's the difference? Well, I, I've been in 9-11 mode, I would say, since January 6th. Mm -hmm. Overly glued to the coverage and following the story and trying to make sense of it, figure out what's really going on. I read something this morning of someone who was an ex, you know, Jonestown indoctrinated person in this cult who had broken away. And that's the one where the phrase, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid comes from. They all drank Kool-Aid and had a mass suicide. And that person said, it is striking how similar the followers of Donald Trump are behaving to people who've been indoctrinated in this sort of cult. This wasn't, I mean, yeah, maybe a football game tailgate party is being part of a cult of, you know, what it's like to go to an NC big, big 10 school or something like that. Um, but this is a, a cult with very bad intentions led by a person with very bad intentions that is completely about himself and taking power wherever and however he can get it without seeming to care at all about the world of impact that he's left behind and he's left destruction behind. I don't know if that answered the question. Ask it again if it didn't. No, you, I, I was curious about the contrast that you, you know, you would make uh, if there was one between what you saw on January uh, 1st and, and, and today. What I see today, like what I saw on January 1st was some people like sort of breaking the rules, going outside of what was expected. What I see today is the system working exactly how it's designed, is that there are mm -hmm. 44, 45 senators who have the authority to vote to acquit this guy and they will do it no matter what happens to protect you know this guy yeah what are they protecting well you know i have shared with you a dream a silly dream perhaps a little seed of maybe even getting involved to replace one of those senators in my state of indiana mike braun in 2024 and so in exploring that dream i realized through some conversations it would probably take $10 million in fundraising to be able to mount a statewide campaign. $10 million. So people who are in the Senate, I imagine many of them feel like they have paid $10 million for a ticket to a six-year event called a term in the Senate. And they've got a discount for the next 
ticket. You know, they're on the VIP list and that's what they're protecting. Their seat at the dance. They don't want to uh, lose that seat of power. And they have safety in numbers, so you can just, you know, Mitch McConnell said, it's a very close call, but I'm going to vote to acquit. So I, I really feel like they're protecting a $10 million investment, you know, or more. So it comes down to money and power, I think, that that's being protected. So you have this, you, you imagined the possibility of you being in that mm. position, in, the, in occupying mm. that seat. Um, and, and representing the state of Indiana, what would make you different? Yeah. You're a white man. Well, being a white, I mean, frankly, being a white man in Indiana takes it from a 0% chance to a 0.1% chance of actually getting into that seat, but it helps. And I, mm. I do sit on the town council in my hometown of Munster, Indiana currently. And when I'm there, I think about two things. I think about the oath of office that I pledged. And I think about the seat itself. And whenever something comes across the desk or a vote needs to be taken, I'm thinking about how would the residents feel about what's going on right here? So I really try and take myself out of it, but rather to be a conduit for what the residents want and as a way to honor what that seat means. And what is that? What, what do they want? Well, that's a very interesting question that, and this is where it gets really tricky because how do I keep my own shadow out of presuming to know what they want? I mean, it's a, it's a big question, you know, sort of like the why, like why you would do this or aspire to it or even, you know, dream about it. Not that it's action, it's an action you're taking now, which, you know, for the point of this conversation, it's, there's a veering that's happening, like a veering off, like you spoke about, there's a veering that's happening and um, in service of, of what, you know, we're also taking a peek at allyship and what that means for you right so if you're veering off with, with this potential dream of occupying a seat and occupying a role in service of the people of the state of indiana what does that mean through the lens of allyship an allyship to whom or with whom i think it does matter maybe above all else what we elect to put in those seats. So a thing that I would bring to that seat would be a coach's lens. This is one of the original reasons that I decided to run for local seat on the town council is to bring the spirit of coaching, which has changed my life since 2013, changed, given me the ability to see the world of impact and not only live in my world of intention. And also, frankly, to bring the lens of an ally. Since I've been in my seat, for the first time, we've had Black residents apply to be on boards and even run for local elected office. And those happened because they had reached out to me because I was in the seat. Frankly, after George Floyd happened this summer, 
to say, what are we doing about police reform? And they wanted to get involved. And I wanted to bring their experience into our government. And it was, even though neither of them were chosen or elected this time yet, it made history, they even bothered, you know, that, that anyone who wasn't a white person even bothered to, to run for, for office. So if I, so if I may translate that, um, <laughs> at least the way I experience you saying it is that the difference you make is creating space, opening a door, putting out an invitation to expand who might show up to expand representation and to have a different impact than the historical impact? I believe that is really critical. And, and pro I don't know if it's 50%, but half of the equation is to elevate voices and profiles from the minority to make space for people to be able to rise to where they belong, to where they ought to be. The other half, which I believe is my responsibility, would be my responsibility as an aspiring ally, is to role model what it looks like to veer off, to make it safe for other white folks in power to veer off from the mainstream, which is a system of sort of undeniable, you know, white supremacy is, the, is an accurate term. It's also a very loaded term. It's just when you look at who's in power, you see a lot more white people. And that is this overwhelming, you know, and they were elected by the country. So people must think that the white folks were better qualified or better suited for the position. So I have, I have to challenge you then. And, and this is just totally for reflection on, and in, in reality, right? Impact. What would be the impact of you supporting yourself to occupy the seat as a white man versus the impact of you supporting some black or brown person to occupy that seat instead of you so that there isn't yet another white man in power. Why you versus the alternative? Well, I'm first starting there. There's a, there's a black woman named Hanifa Kalik from the city of Gary, who is actively running against Todd Young in 2022, 2022, the next seat coming up. And I've had initial conversation with her. I'm excited about her campaign. And so I am supporting that. I would support a better candidate. I say also in in my current elected office, I hope I lose to somebody better because that's good for folks. You know, that's good for the town. It's good for government. I can be the best candidate I can be. And hopefully I lose rightfully to someone who's even better than me. Why wouldn't you want that? I, and I don't know. This is a very early seed that has been planted, which can veer in all sorts of directions. You know, certainly how I think of it is that it's important to have a view of the future and what must happen and hold on to that very firmly and then be agnostic to the path by which we make it there. If I would be the white person to be in that seat, my hope is that it would be part of a transition to not being so many white people disproportionately in all of those seats. I feel like Joe Biden is an old white guy who seems to me to be a transition candidate who's using his electability to make space for people who aren't like him 
but who are going to be the future of our country when we start working on the real problems, which are the problems in the world of impact. I think you were touching on this in, in, in at least that's how I, I was receiving it in multiple ways. So I'll just ask the question. It sounds like you're saying, you know, you want to create spaces that welcome whoever the best person is and I'm, and spaces in general, not necessarily elected position, but spaces in general and, and support that. And also a, a bit of me too, like I can do this and uh, maybe so can others. So my, my question is because you have a certain degree of power, privilege and rank because you're a white man, what are you willing to lose? What are you willing to give up to support these notions that you're sharing with my listeners right now? I think that's it is part of the deal of aspiring to be an ally in more than just words, but actions. And it's hard to actually figure out what those actions are, you know, need to be in partnership with Neil and many others who, and, you know, people of color, black people who can see fully my impact, because I'm still stuck in my intention a lot. And taking those steps towards allyship and taking actions that alienate one or alienate me from the mainstream, make relationships with former, you know, friends or old friends and uh, family strained or, uh, you know, tr trading those in the, you know, I, I have a, I have a friend that I met and we've been having before it was 12 degrees outside. We were having outdoor COVID safe breakfast on Friday morning. And he's a black man with kids who, he's got two kids in, in our school in the same grade as Lana. And we were having this conversation and he's like, Steve, I, I can't understand why you're talking the way that you're talking. Like, are you afraid of losing this privilege that you have? And I guess that's part of the deal. I, I don't want, I would use this term of blood money. So if, I'm, if I might, I'll share a little story. When I was in Amsterdam, you know, I worked as a strategy consultant. I worked really hard as a strategy consultant. And it wasn't really who I was, but I was chasing that idea of who I was supposed to be. And for a number of reasons, we was able to save up a pretty good chunk of uh, euros. And then we decided to move. Then I had a burnout, right? Because I was running so far away from who I was. I had a burnout. I didn't know who I was anymore. And I couldn't function. My body shut down. My brain shut down. My emotions shut down. I was spiritually devoid of, you know, any sense of energy. And through working with a coach and therapy and a doctor and reading books and time with friends, we decided, Celine and I did, to pick up and move back home for me, away from her home and to mine at Munster. And we just did it like selling the house was the one time maybe in the history of the housing market in Amsterdam where you could buy a house, hold on to it for a few years and sell it for like 30% less. And now that house is worth double what we sold it for. You know, this is what, seven, eight years ago. And so I had through this sort of hard work, but also it's kind of ridiculous. I say the moon's aligned, you know, I just decided, oh, I want to go to Amsterdam. And guess what? I got hired back to Accenture. I got transferred immediately. I could cry about my salary being lowered, but then I got promoted. And then I took an interview at a strategy firm and then I got it. And then I got a big raise in the BMW and all this, like all this stuff did just come to me. Sure, I worked hard for it, but it was a pretty easy path to walk. 
and I'm not sure that people who are not a white man like me with my credentials would have had such an easy path to walk. But I had amassed this amount of money. And now just to get out of the house, it was all going to have to be reinvested, given back to the bank so we can come back here. And I felt pretty bad about it. I felt, you know, excited to move back and start a new life, but really remorseful that, or like harmed, I guess, you know, it's unfair that I have to lose all this money. And I was at a Christmas party or something with a friend and the IT guy from work, Minos, I was in conversation with him and I just had this realization. I was like, you know what, Minos, that was actually blood money. I earned that money by doing something that wasn't true to my spirit and my soul. And it's kind of tainted. And so I'm happy to let go of that money. It's still hard. I still think about it. So we're talking like over 100,000 euros. Let go of that money in order to purify my soul, let's say. So this privilege that I have of being able to walk through the system as is and get to high places, it w- would be, is ill-begotten. It's a form of blood money. And that is the problem that I'm aspiring to, that I'm speaking about with my words, saying that's wrong. So I have to give up that path to get there in order to be in integrity with my values. Otherwise, I'm just actually using this language in a very insidious way. You know, I think it was Martin Luther King that said, that he's less worried about the Southern racists than he is the the Northern liberals, the white liberals who claim to do the right thing, but they're much more insidious. So I got to keep myself in check um, and not fall on old habits that will have me leverage my privilege to get as high as I can get and not caring about how I get there. How does allyship hold you accountable to getting rid of the blood money? It requires, I think, a thing that is required of a good ally is to build trusted relationships where you have people, and I'm in frequent enough contact with people who can call me out on my shit, and where we have conversations Mm -hmm. about really tricky, tricky topics, and it's sort of safe. Like, I can say the wrong thing because I know I will be lovingly told that how it impacted the other person. And so I can get a glimpse into the world of impact so that I might learn that language a bit better. It's like in learning to speak Spanish, there's a thing called the tertulia, where half the time you speak English with a Spanish speaker, right? So they learn English and then you switch and you flip to speaking Spanish. And so the English speaker now gets to learn the other language. And so these sort of, you know, allyship tertulias are really important um, spaces, very reverent spaces where I can conjugate the verb wrong, sound like an idiot, and then say, no, that's not quite right. I, I think I know what you're trying to say. This is how you say it. And say, okay, now I got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, so I'll, you, you said a couple of things that I believe, you know, resonate with me. You said through partnership with black people and through these relationships is, you know, that's the way that I do it. And, uh, it, you know, for me, that is a the underpinning of allyship is being in partnership, being in relationship that also has clarity and accountability built in. And so thank you for that, Steve. 
really without knowing the how to get rid of the blood money, the actual things to do, those things will unfold if you are in right partnership, right relationship that holds you accountable uh, to your screw-ups. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you are aware because we do have a relationship that, you know, I'm one of those people that will hold you to that. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, 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 I say this, I invoke you quite frequently because so much of what I have learned to enable me to get a glimpse and become curious about the world of impact is from, you know, conversations that we've been having for years. Mm -hmm. And I can ask you stuff like, you know, why should you be the white man in the seat? <laughs> and you know that's coming from, you know, a, a caring and, and kind uh, space, uh, one of relationship. And that question does something really important as well, is just simply to point out, yeah, Steve, you actually are a white guy trying to get that seat. You know, don't, you're not. <laughs> you're not what fantasy you might have made up in your in your mind. Like, this is actually not only what it looks like, but what it is. And that means something in this language that you know, you're building fluency, but you don't quite understand it. It's very interesting. You know, I think this is important for any allies who might also be or aspiring allies who might also be listening is it's a choice what conversations you have and what spaces you put yourself in. And I've been, like you said, just open to the path that's going to unfold. And I've been looking at my spaces recently that I am in by choice. And I'm usually very much in the minority in those spaces. I'm having conversations with lots of black folks about this topic of race, but also how do we do stuff for them in the, in the city of Gary, for example, uh, or in the coaching spaces? How do we create this sort of allyship? I was on a call recently and I was the only man there, you know, and the way I showed up was called out very harshly. And it was by another, it was by a white woman, you know, we were all there for the same reason. And so I got to sit back and notice my impact of being the white, the one white man in that group of folks and the only man and seeing that my good intention for what I was trying to do had a negative impact. And so sit with that, but then also be able to play back that her good intention had a negative impact on me and therefore the group, right? And have one of those conversations. So it need not only be in partnership with black people, folks and white folks or Asian folks and white folks. Also other allies where you hold each other accountable. You know, we do say in team coaching that everyone is 100% right, only partially. Mm -hmm. Your truth is 100% of the truth, but it's not the whole story. Yeah. Beautifully stated, Steve. Um, thank you for your, your time today. And thank you for, you know, that last nugget that you, you've shared with listeners who are aspiring to be allies. And uh, I, I want to close with one final remark, and that is based on what you just said about the spaces that you're in. Allyship doesn't happen from a distance and outside of relationship and outside of conversations. It happens on the inside. And you are demonstrating that more and more um, as these opportunities show up in front of you, you're saying, yes, you're making that choice. It's a choice. And you step into those relationships and you step into those conversations. And I really appreciate that about you. So 
thank you for joining us today on the Leadership Range. I'm sure many listeners will enjoy being in this conversation with us. Is there one last thing that you want to leave listeners with today, briefly? Yeah, that choice is life-giving. Forgive yourself of all the choices that you've made from which you've profited and you maybe you didn't earn it. Now you can make a different choice to, to trade some of those things in. And that is what will pay in the spiritual realm. And the final word, Niels, thank you for so graciously uh, welcoming me into your space on the leadership range. Glad to have you. That was provocative, and I can sit here and add my reflections for another 15 or 20 minutes, but I am going to leave that to you and rather just summarize the tips and wisdom in a few points that Steve dropped today. Number one, make a life-giving choice. Get into Tertulia allyships, as Steve framed it. Uh, it pays spiritual dividends. Number two, veer away from the world of intention to expand your ability to see what you cannot. There's something here for uh, corporate leaders who have indexed heavily toward the principle of assume positive intent. The nudge here is it is easily weaponized and mutes or perhaps destroys a lot of DNI efforts. Number three, give up blood money. Systematically letting go or trading in some of the privileges that you perhaps didn't earn. Four, listen to minorities. Do things wrong. Allow yourself to be corrected in allyships. Five, begin finding ways to alienate yourself from the mainstream. Strain or train in relationships with family and friends. That's a big one. That's a tough one. I've actually done that myself. Six, Steve did not mention powerlessness. This is my own point. It never came up as an emotion or feeling in our conversation. He owns the power that comes with the privilege that he has, and he's choosing to use it to create equity. Hopefully, he will continue to do that with skill and persistence over a long period of time. We can all do a little bit more of that. Thank you again for listening to The Leadership Range. I hope you gained something from listening to the voices of aspiring allies over the last month as we journeyed from insurrection to a Senate impeachment trial and acquittal of the former president. We clearly have a lot of work to do in leadership, relationships, well-being, and inclusion. I hope you'll join me again next Monday for a new episode of The Leadership Range. You can find me on LinkedIn at linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash nedwards07 or Instagram at neil underscore edwards underscore coaching. If you have ideas for future topics or know a coach or leader whose voice you think ought to be here, send us an email. Until next week, this is The Leadership Range.